So today it's Palm Sunday. And interestingly, four weeks ago, I preached to kick off our series on the Passion Week. So as we've been looking after over the last few weeks, we've been taking those last few days of Jesus's life, um, really to look at them in detail. So what happened on the 8th of March was I preached about Palm Sunday, not on Palm Sunday. And here we are on Palm Sunday, and I'm going to take us to the cross. You may remember when I spoke on the 8th of March that we looked at how Jesus was coming up to Jerusalem on a donkey and the disciples and his other followers were there. Everyone was singing Hosanna. There was all these signs of messiahship. But the disciples had no idea what was going to happen just a few days later. It's interesting, isn't it? When I preached on the 8th of March, I had no idea what would be happening four weeks later, that I would be here, sat in my office, preaching to my computer, uh, but knowing that you're all there and we're all joining together from our homes, how the world can change. Last week, Caleb did a brilliant job, didn't he, at looking at the Last Supper and looking at how that was linked to the betrothal ceremony uh, in, Jewish, uh, in Jewish circles. So. When he brought the cup of wine, he was really marking the start of a betrothal between him and the church. A betrothal that will be consummated when Jesus returns again. Now, after that, he come, Jesus comes out, doesn't he? And he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and there he prays an agonizing prayer. He goes to the Father and he says, may this cup taken from me but not my will but yours be done he comes out and at that point he's arrested taken to the high priests uh, and then in the morning brought before Pontius Pilate and a Roman trial and as we know it ends in the decision to crucify him now, there is lots that we could take out of all those aspects, the Garden of Gethsemane, the arrest itself, the trial. But as I've prepared this talk, what I've really felt is that it's right to focus in on the cross itself. So we are going to linger at the cross this morning. You see, I believe that as we linger at the cross, we will see some of the individual encounters with Jesus. There are groups there, but there are these really important individual characters and these individual encounters which teach us something about Jesus. So we're going to read a fairly chunky passage, uh, if you've got your Bibles with you. Luke chapter 23, uh, we're going to be reading from verse, 20, uh, from verse 32 right through to 49. Uh, let's just really try and picture the scene afresh. I'm into picturing the scene, aren't I? I got you all on Palm on when I was talking about uh, the events of Palm Sunday to really try and picture what's going on. Well, let's try and do that again this morning. Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. 
and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour and the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. At the cross, we have these different groups of people who have gathered. I wonder how you picture it. Uh, I was looking at some paintings. Later on, perhaps when you're bored, you can Google crucifixion of Jesus and try and guess which picture I'm about to describe. But a lot of these pictures have got Jesus on the cross. It all looks rather beautiful almost, maybe two or three people beside. A lot of these paintings are painted by Catholic painters and you've got that focus on Mary at the cross. But actually, of course, that wasn't what was happening. The crucifixion was incredibly public. Uh, there would have been lots of coming and going. And I, one painting I particularly liked, um, Jesus is on the cross. There are his followers looking up, mourning. There are the soldiers there casting lots for his clothes. But there's also there's two guys. They're just having a chat about something. Quite a heated argument, it looks like. Just chattering away while the crucifixion's going on. And then there's a woman walking past. Looks like she's going off to do her shopping and she just glances back at the cross. But even that picture, it all looks a little bit, Jesus looks a little bit um, just, just white, just a little bit sort of like he hasn't been uh, beaten and beaten and beaten. So perhaps more uh, appropriate would be a scene from The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's film, where Jesus is absolutely covered in blood. And there you've got all the Roman soldiers aside, alongside him and the followers and the mourners are facing towards. Perhaps that's more what it looks like. But one thing is certain, there was lots of different people there and lots of different groups. One of those groups is the Romans. Now, they are fairly disinterested in what's going on. Look at this group of soldiers. They're just, just casting lots. They're mocking. It's all a bit distant from them. It all probably feels a bit weird. You've then got the chief priests, the Jewish, the members of the Jewish religious establishment. They are hard of heart. 
my goodness, they are crucifying the chosen, promised king. And they don't see it. They don't see it. They're hard of hearts, but they also have chosen not to get their hands dirty. They are stepping away, let the Romans do that. And then, of course, you have the crowd and Jesus' own followers. In there, there's a mix of just that public mourning at a crucifixion, such a public place of death. So these, these groups, but within each group, there are individual people. And those are some of the stories I want to pull out this morning. The first of those is the criminal. So Jesus has been crucified. There's a criminal on his left and a criminal on his right. And one of those criminals is just joining in with the mocking. But the other criminal has an incredible revelation of who Jesus is. First of all, he recognises that Jesus is innocent. He says to the other guy, we're being punished for something we've done, but this guy, this guy is innocent. How did he know that? We presume he maybe has been in prison until he's been brought out to his crucifixion. I believe he has had a direct revelation. There is something different here. This is Jesus. And not only that, he says, remember me when you come to your kingdom. There is a revelation of who Jesus is. And Jesus answers him, I tell you the truth. Today you will see me in paradise. Jesus offers forgiveness. There is a personal encounter. The personal encounter I love most is just at the end of the passage we've just looked at, which is the centurion. Now, a centurion would have been in charge of a hundred Roman soldiers. So he's there, perhaps he's on horseback, watching what's going on. But when Jesus dies, something strikes him. And he praises God and says, surely this was a righteous man. Or in the Gospel of Matthew, surely this was the son of God or a son of God. What's the centurion seen? Yes, he's seen that darkness covered the land, this earthquake that's mentioned in Matthew and Mark, but also he's just watched how Jesus has dealt with death. He has just watched Jesus on the cross. He has been impacted by him. Just as Pontius Pilate was impacted by Jesus, you see, we can't, haven't got time to go into all the detail of the conversation that Pilate and Jesus have. But what we know is that Jesus challenges Pilate at the deepest level about the truth, about authority, about whose authority he really does have. When Pilate sends Jesus to the cross, he is a representative of the greatest law in the land, and he fails because he sends an innocent, innocent man to the cross. But as a ruler of a, of a nation that you know, the Romans were ruling over the Jews, he's won because actually in the Gospel of John, we see the chief priests say, we have no king but Caesar. Pilate says, here is your king. He's mocking. And they say, we have no king but Caesar. This is an extraordinary claim from the heads of the Jewish religion who are waiting for their Messiah, who are waiting for their king. And they say to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. Extraordinary. But in all this, Pilate is impacted 
by his encounter with Jesus. One more person for you. Uh, we didn't cover it in the passage today, but after Jesus dies, a man called Joseph of Arimathea comes. Now he is a member of the Jewish council. It says a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. So he'd been involved in, you know, he was part of this council that was deciding that, that Jesus needed to be killed, but he had not consented to it because he was a secret follower of Jesus. But he would risk his reputation. His love for Jesus was so strong that he went to Pilate. He asked to take Jesus's body down and to put it in his tomb. What I'm struck by as we look at these different people is that whilst there are groups of people who are maybe expected to behave in a certain way, there are individuals within them who do something different. So the Romans as a group, disinterested, mocking, just not really caring what's going on. And yet the centurion is touched, he is impacted, and he says, surely this is a righteous man. The Jewish chief priests Pharisees, leaders, the scribes, they are hard of heart. They have crucified the chosen king. But Joseph loves Jesus. Joseph risks his reputation because his love for Jesus is so great. I don't know about you at the moment, but I feel like most of us in, in a certain group, we are, uh, some of us are at home working from home, perhaps with our children at home, trying to make that all work in some kind of melee. Some of us are on the front line. We are still going out. We may be putting our lives at risk on a daily basis. Some people are in that category that needs to be shielded. They have not left their house for the last couple of weeks and don't expect to for a good few weeks to come. There are those who are at home and have been furloughed, aren't able to work, don't have to try not to buy children, are bored out of their mind. We're all in different groups. And perhaps there's an expectation on how each of those groups react. But I want to say this morning that Jesus is deeply personal and Jesus meets you in your need. So you may be a frontline worker, just absolutely loving being part of the heroic effort to go out and save lives. And Jesus understands that. But you may be deeply regretting your choice to work in a supermarket rather than a clothing shop. You may be deeply regretting your choice to work for the NHS because you're scared. And Jesus understands that too. You may be at home really struggling with homeschooling your kids and working and feeling really guilty about that. Jesus understands. Or you may be just absolutely loving it, loving that family time, having great bonding time and just thinking, actually, this is not so bad. Jesus understands that too. You see, Jesus is deeply personal. And at the cross, he ushers in this personal relationship we can have. In Jeremiah chapter 31, 34, there's a prophecy. And this is being brought into its own here. No longer will a man teach his neighbour or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. 
because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. At the cross, Jesus pays full atonement for all our sins. He will remember our sins no more. This prophecy is brought in and we will all know him. We can all have a personal relationship. That's why the temple curtain is cut in two. No longer do we have to go through a chief priest. We can all have a direct and personal relationship with Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? So firstly, as we linger at the cross, we see this personal encounter with Jesus. The second thing I think we see is that there is level ground at the cross. We are all on level ground before Jesus. By that I mean there's no prioritisation, there's no hierarchy, there's not some who, um, who are higher up in Jesus' estimation. Jesus loves us all equally. We are all sinful. It's level ground. Right now there's quite a lot of talk about prioritisation. Healthcare professionals are having to prioritise who they care for. There's a priority on who gets the tests. Some people will weather this storm and others are facing financial ruin. But with Jesus, it's level ground. He dies as much for the centurion as he does for his own mother. He dies as much for the criminal on his left and on his right as he does for you and for me. This pandemic, more than anything else, has placed us on level ground. In this country, our prime minister has it. The heir to the throne has had it. Famous people are having it. Rich people, poor people, people from all backgrounds. This is a virus that does not discriminate uh, a, a different types of people. It doesn't respect ethnic boundaries. It doesn't re uh, respect national boundaries. In the eyes of the world, we're different, but in the eyes of this virus, we're all the same. When it comes to losing a loved one, we are all weak and without voices. We're reminded of our fragility, aren't we, at this time? We're reminded that we are from dust to dust we will return. We're reminded of some verses in Psalm 103, which says that our days are like grass. They flourish like a flower, the wind blows over it, and it is gone. Its place remembers it no more. We're on level ground at the cross before Jesus. And what of that suffering and death all around? They're not just statistics. I don't know about you, um, John said a couple of weeks ago that he's limiting how much news they are taking in. I'm going for the six o'clock news as my kind of slot. That way I've spent most of the day focusing on work, focusing on the children. If I watch the 10 o'clock news, it's just too late and going to bed. So at six o'clock, the only sad thing about this is I always used to cook dinner, listening to worship songs and singing along. But right now I feel like this is the appropriate time to have the six o'clock news on while I'm cooking and just check in with what's going on. And of course it usually starts with the statistics. How many have died? in each country, they go from country to country and then you just see these numbers. But let's not forget that each one of 
these numbers is a human being who has lost their life and is surrounded by bereaved people who can't even say a proper goodbye. What does a cross, what message does a cross have for those people? Well, it's an incredibly public death, the cross. And I, you know, it's interesting because when um, all four gospel writers take us to the scene of the cross, they don't just say, and Pontius Pilate said, handed him over to be crucified, and he was crucified and buried in Joseph's tomb. None of them do that. They take us to the scene of the cross. Why? Well, in part, we're seeing the fulfillment of prophecies like the casting lots for the clothes, but I think also we get to see how Jesus does suffering, death. And actually, here in Britain, we're, we're not very good with death and we tend to um, skate over it. There's nothing wrong with looking for the bright side of life. But when it comes to suffering, when it comes to death, we do tend to try and hide it behind closed doors or feel like we should, feel like we should put a brave face on it. That's not true in all cultures. In fact, quite a lot of cultures are very different. I lived in Guatemala for six years. I want to share a bit about how they do this uh, because it's very different from here. So if someone in your household dies, you will go outside and you will put a black bow on your house. So you may get a black bin liner and turn it into a bow or, or an item of black clothing. And you will put that on your house so that everyone who walks past knows that someone has done. Now, they don't walk past, say a quick prayer, uh, or think, oh, better go to the card shop, send them a card of condolence. No, they walk straight into the house to pay their respects to the dead and to comfort those who mourn. So you get this sort of people filing in for 24 hours and the next morning the person is buried. Now, one of these that I went to, I was astonished because a load of children came filing in. I'm thinking, what is going on? Again, in our culture, we tend to shield children from the reality of death. But it turned out that the lady who had passed away was a teacher. And so for this culture, it was entirely appropriate that the whole school would empty out of school and come to this lady's house and pay their respects. This is all making us think a lot more about how we think about and talk about suffering and death. Now, I want to take you to a passage in the Gospel of John, an absolutely beautiful tableau here, also at the cross, not covered by Luke, but it's here in John chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So amidst all the comings and goings at the cross, all the people who are there in their different ways of behaving. There is this beautiful tableau 
with John, Mary, and Jesus on the cross. Can we just imagine the pain here? Mary is seeing her son die a horrible death. The depth of suffering is deep. It's strong. I've never experienced suffering like that. Some of you have. Jesus understands suffering in the very deepest. And you know, Jesus could have said from the cross, don't worry, don't grieve. Remember, I did tell you I was going to rise again on Sunday. Because he had told them that. But he doesn't. He enters into that point of suffering and pain. And of course, he knows that even when he rises again, it's not going to be the same. They will be bereaved because he will only come back for a few weeks and then he will ascend into heaven. So at that moment, he enters in and he does a beautiful, beautiful thing in linking his mother and his, his best friend, the disciple who it says was closest to him, he links them together as a pseudo mother and son. And what's beautiful about that is that after this has all happened, after they watch him die, they will have each other to share those memories with. They will have each other to share the pain with. They will find strength in that because it's okay to grieve. It's okay to grieve. see, many of us right now are separated from those we love, and Jesus understands that separation. When he came to earth, he left his father's side. He was separated from his heavenly father when he lived on earth. And at that moment of, um, of dying on the cross, there was complete separation. Jesus understands separation. Jesus died a horrible death. And I don't know about you, but I can't think of much more horrible deaths than struggling to breathe on a ventilator, surrounded by people in masks and none of your close family or friends nearby. But Jesus is there. There is no social distancing for Jesus. He is there with every single one of us in whatever situation we are facing. And he understands. And Jesus dies, and the heavens respond. And you know, when they split his side and water and blood pour out, what life-giving, life-representing substances they are. And we mark them with baptism. And as we looked last week, with the sharing of bread and wine, with the Eucharist. Because as we are baptised, we die to sin and we rise with Christ. And as we share the bread and wine, we remember what Jesus did for us. That as he died, he gives life to us all. He ushers in the new covenant. But there are scars. When Jesus uh, shows himself to Thomas, the disciple, he shows his scars from the nails in his hands and his feet. There are scars from suffering. We will have scars from this experience. And they will run deep. But the wonderful news is that there is beauty 
instead of ashes. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61. This is a passage that Jesus starts to preach when he first stands up to teach and he, he opens the scriptures in Isaiah chapter 61 and he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. It's to preach good news to the poor. And he goes on, but the passage in Isaiah goes on after that passage and says, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. I'm going to read that again. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. We sing the worship song, don't we? Morning turns to songs of praise. Our God saves. I believe that beauty will rise from these ashes and I look forward to seeing what that beauty is because that is a promise. A long, long time ago, God made a promise to Noah. He promised Noah that he would never destroy the earth again with floods. And what was the symbol that he gave to Noah? Rain. And as most of you all know, many people have been putting rainbows up in their windows. Uh, they have been putting it up to cheer us all up. It's beautiful when you go for a walk to see them. Uh, hopefully those of you who can't leave your houses, maybe someone over the road has got one there. But for us, that is a reminder that God keeps his promises and God promises beauty for ashes. So as you look at those rainbows, let's remember that. It is okay to grieve. Caleb said last week, it is important that we just process our emotions as and when they come. Jesus is personal. He is deeply personal. He does not prioritize. He'll not come to you later when you need to hear from him, when you need to give your life to him. He is there waiting with open arms. I want to show you these rainbows here. Uh, these are, uh, this is our rainbow. There's one that Rona and uh, her children did this week. And then there's one from the Methodist Church, um, just on Front Street. Just gaze on these rainbows. Let's remember our God who keeps his promises. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. We want to thank you for all that it means. But Lord, today particularly, we want to thank you the personal nature of your relationship with us. We want to thank you that even there when you were suffering, you were reaching out personally, you were impacting people personally. Lord, we thank you that there is level ground at the cross, that you do not prioritise, that you die as much for one person as the next, as much for the criminal as for your own mother. 
And Lord, we want to take hold this morning of that promise of beauty for ashes. Lord God, we pray that you would guide us, that you would bless us, that you would make us to be a people who shine your light, who speak words of light and life. And Lord God, we look forward to seeing the beauty you will bring. In Jesus' name.